Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Gustavo Gutierrez Suarez, one of the hosts of New Books in Anthropology, a podcast series of the New Books Network. Today, we are here with Dr. Mayfer Jang. She is Professor of Religious Studies and East Asian Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She has authored two monographs, Gifts, Favors, and Banquets, The Art of Social Relationships in China, um, and Reenchanting Modernity in China, Ritual Economy and Religious Civil Society in Venzhou. Dr. Zhang has also edited two books, Chinese Religiosities, Afflictions of Modernity and State Formation, and Spaces of Their Own, Women's Public Sphere in Transnational China. Hello, Dr. Jan, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. Hello, Gustavo. This is uh, Mayfair Yang, and thank you very much for inviting me for this interview. Thank you so much for being here and talking to us about the book you recently edited, Chinese Environmental Ethics, Religions, Ontologies and Practices, published by Roman and Littlefield Publishers in 2021. I'm obviously more than happy to have this interview and thus offer our audience a close outlook to this outstanding, insightful book. Um, before we start to talk about the book itself, um, could you please, uh, Dr. Zhang, tell us a bit about your academic life and the work you have been developing previous to the publication of this book? Well, uh, I was born in uh, Taiwan, and uh, so I spoke uh, Mandarin Chinese at home, but uh, I didn't really learn uh, the reading and writing until um, as an undergraduate at uh, UC Berkeley. So I uh, studied uh, anthropology and um, what was then called Oriental Languages at UC Berkeley. And I received all my three degrees there, BA, MA, and PhD in anthropology there. So I've been a professor at UC Santa Barbara, first in the anthropology department, And later on, I transferred to Religious Studies Department and East Asian Studies Department. So that's basically uh, my educational history. Um, And um, did you want me to talk about how I came upon the topic of uh, environmental ethics? Uh, yes, for sure. Um, how did you become interested in in the theme of Chinese environmental ethics, and and also um, how did you start to work on on this book in particular? Could you please uh, tell us about the genesis and the process behind it? Yeah, sure. So um, when I was doing uh, fieldwork, I've been doing fieldwork uh, in uh, rural Wenzhou on the southeastern coast of uh, China since the 1990s. And uh, I wrote a book called Reenchanting Modernity, which is uh, about um, religious civil society in Wenzhou. 
but one story uh, I found very compelling was told to me uh, by a, um, a a man who lived in a, a mountain village of uh, Wenzhou, who then um, secretly got himself smuggled into Italy. Uh, and he worked in um, Chinese-run sweatshops in Italy. And he told me this story, which was very compelling, and I wanted to to uh, include it later. Uh, so this was a story about how he learned that his uh, mountain village, while he was away in Italy, um, the village uh, leaders sold the village and the mount, beautiful mountain stream in which he had played um, as a child to a uh, power company uh, that was going to ruin the stream uh, and pollute the stream. And he kept on calling the village leader saying, don't do this. Uh, you've got to think about the whole history of our village and how we've depended on this uh, stream for our livelihood. And they still wanted to do it. So he bought a plane ticket and rushed back. And he filed uh, complaints uh, all the way up to Beijing. This is a process called petitioning. And uh, he managed to get an office in Beijing to come down and investigate and stop the sale. So as a result of that, he saved the village and a beautiful uh, mountain village and the stream from destruction. So uh, what caused him to do this? Um, it was a a religious sentiments for the sacredness of the native place where his ancestors um, have been living for 600 years where um, all his ancestors are buried. So the tomb space is very important. So I thought about religiosity and the sacrality of a place and environmental issues. And for me, um, in Santa Barbara in 2017, we endured a terrible wildfire. You know, California has had so many wildfires We've had so much drought in the past eight, 10 years, uh, very lack of water. And so in 2017, there was the Thomas fire that almost burned down my house while I was in Germany. My husband was here and, uh, you know, enduring the smoke and everything. So the fire came within two kilometers of our house. And that also made me think about environmental issues. Um, so the new concept of uh, the age of the Anthropocene uh, was very um, stimulating to me too. And I read up on the scientific discussion of Anthropocene as the new age when human actions and impact on planet Earth uh, now become more important than um, natural forces. Um, so humanity then, uh, this is the first time in the pl our planetary history where human actions become more important, affecting the planet as a whole and other non-human species like plants and animals. 
So all these things came together and uh, I thought, well, we should think about Chinese, uh, different forms of Chinese religions. There are many different forms. We have shamanism, we have uh, popular religion, we have the three um, axial age religions uh, with, uh, you know, that have left written records such as Taoism, Buddhism, and Confucianism. Um, and then more recently, we have Christianity in, coming in in the 19th century. Uh, well, actually, maybe in the eight, even before in the Ming Dynasty, we had um, Jesuits coming in. But uh, so I thought about how, um, you know, previously, uh, the realm of um, environmental studies has been dominated by the STEM sciences, such as, uh, you know, physics, biology, uh, and also engineering to work on environmental engineering. Uh, but uh, those are technological fixes. You know, in the modern age, we um, human societies keep on embracing technology as the solution to all our problems. So the example of um, uh, social media and the internet, we thought that was great. We have this ideology of progress. We thought, wow, you know, incredible uh, advances. But really, the internet and social media have extended our work hours, right? So that's not so great. Uh, we now work through the weekend because we have the internet and we feel compelled to answer all those questions. Also, social media was a new technology that thought that we thought would be great, but it has brought us new problems such as, uh, you know, teenage depression and suicide, uh, social polarization, political polarization of, uh, you know, uh, that has brought us um, a very uh, difficult uh, ideologies uh, like white supremacy in the United States. We're dealing with that. So, uh, and a lot of disinformation, fake news through social media. So we cannot solve problems just with technological fixes. So we have to, you know, reflect Human beings have to reflect upon ourselves and question the whole um, consequences of enlightenment because, <clears throat> you know, we have to look at something much deeper, such as ontology, uh, which is about human existence and being and reality. And we actually have to extend ontology to inquiries beyond human beings to other species like plants and animals. So uh, this Norwegian philosopher Arne Ness, N-A-E-S-S, -S, who uh, coined this concept of deep ecology, uh, was an early inspiration for me to think about, um, you know, questioning our very uh, mode of being in the modern age. Okay, so um, so qu asking questions such as how do human consciousness and 
senses of the self differ from other forms of life. Okay, so not just talking about uh, you know human existence, but looking at human existence in the context of other natural forces and and uh, what Buddhists call sentient beings. Okay, so uh, other forms of animal life. I think that the Buddhists um, did not quite include plant species as sentient beings, but we can easily, you know, extend our concerns to plants because we see plants suffer. They also can express themselves when they suffer. So we, we can visibly see plant suffering too. Um, and we can ask questions such as how to extend ethics human ethics to other species and learn of, uh, you know, how we have to expand and broaden our ethics to other species. And how can we increase interspecies communication and cooperation, uh, which we need to do in um, our current Anthropocene world. Because uh, Newtonian science created a very mechanistic universe which uh, denied the natural world any kind of uh, uh, vitality and animation and um, agency. And uh, so all pre-modern religious um, worlds gave animism uh, to the natural world. Okay, and so the natural world had active agency. Um, so it, today, m- many of us do not no longer believe that uh, things like trees um, and uh, thunder are spirits, or have uh, are forms of uh, spirits, right? That we have to be in awe of, that we have to sacrifice to and respect. Uh, But still, how can we recreate that kind of animistic existence to nature? That is um, what uh, we need to learn from by studying um, religions, okay, Uh, which uh, like Chinese uh, religions gave um, animism to uh, forces of nature. Okay, including the stars and constellations. These were forms of uh, deities. These were gods, okay, that were uh, respected, sacrificed to, okay? So how do we recreate it in our modern secular world? So we need to begin by studying um, uh, indigenous people, by studying peasant cultures like in China, which still have this culture that is living and look at their practices and talk to them about what they believe and and uh, uh, work with that and bring it into the secular world. So we cannot just uh, go along with that kind of Newtonian universe, which is still ruling much of our thinking. Uh, we cannot just have this natural world that is reduced to inert matter, 
you know, matter that does not feel, that has no feelings, that is not living and feeling. Okay. So that's, that's the turn to uh, pre-modern religiosities that are still living in many parts of the world. Even in a place like China, uh, where religion was almost completely destroyed. Yeah. Mm. Dr. Uh, Zhang, uh, you begin uh, the book with uh, the following passage taken from Shang Zai, a neo-Confucianist philosopher born in the year um, 1020. Um, Heaven is my father, and earth is my mother, and even such a small creature as I finds an intimate place in their midst. Therefore, that wish extends throughout the universe I regard as my body, and that which directs the universe I consider as my nature. All people are my brothers and sisters, and all things are my companions. Why did you consider, Professor Yang, why did you consider important to open the book with this epigraph? Well, um, you know, I'm not an expert on Neo-Confucian philosophy, uh, but a thousand years ago, uh, this passage was written by this uh, well-known philosopher. And uh, what uh, I really love about it is that it's so vivid, right, that uh, uh, it doesn't place humanity on top of the cosmos as the chosen people, Uh, as having any special place, it uh, shows, for example, he says, such a small creature as I. He's seeing humanity, uh, such as himself, as a tiny little element of this larger cosmos that is interdependent. And this is very much modern ecological thinking that uh, we are dependent on other species around us and what we do impact them and what they do impact us. Uh, so they have agency and uh, they are also contributing uh, to the evolution of um, biological beings and also the planet and the climate and um So there's this idea now uh, increasingly accepted in scientific circles of the Gaia hypothesis uh, that, uh, that um, you know, small microscopic organisms in the oceans uh, are contributing to balancing and modifying the climate. So in the history of the Earth, uh, of the universe, of our solar system, the planet Earth has actually moved closer to the sun. Um, so we should be burning like crazy. Uh, and, uh, you know, life forms are still living. It's because of the cloud cover, which then is uh, interlinked with the microorganisms uh, coming out of the ocean in a cyclical rebalancing. So there's a constant rebalancing of the forces of nature 
including humans, that uh, can mitigate the consequences of our gradual movement closer to the sun. So the planet is a living force of uh, all these interdependent uh, creatures and living organisms. That, that expresses modern science, actually, <laughs> a thousand years ago. Now, Professor Yang, uh, you ask um, that although Chinese religiosities underwent a traumatic history of suppression throughout the 20th century, they have bounced back in the new millennium as Chinese people search for ways to deal with the new demands and travails of modern life. Could you please um, elaborate uh, for our audience? Uh, could you please elaborate mm -hmm. on this recent traumatic history for Chinese religiosities and and the current yeah. situation today? Yes. So um, throughout the late 19th century and early 20th century, social evolutionism um, came out of Europe into China as well as Christianity. And both of them were uh, pretty arrogant towards uh, other religions. And uh, there was this idea of progress and linear evolutionism where all societies of the world must follow through the exact same stages of the West and become modern uh, and um So those who were different from the West are labeled backward, backwards. And uh, those, uh, you know, closer are more advanced. And the West was most advanced. So this kind of linear uh, thinking about history and about social evolution very much was embraced by the educated people of China. And they lost confidence in their traditional religions. They labeled them backward and they sought to suppress them. So uh, throughout the 20th century, it's the whole history of suppression of traditional religiosities as being backward and superstitious. That was a term that was adopted from um, Westerners and was extremely destructive. I think one could say This has happened around the world and including Latin America, where uh, indigenous uh, religions were labeled superstitious and were suppressed. And yet, uh, you know, um, a lot of uh, extremely valuable um, wisdom was lost in this suppression. And uh, in China today, Uh, they realized uh, after the Cultural Revolution, they have come to realize that that kind of suppression was too extremist. And uh, now uh, different forms of religiosity are allowed to um, revive, but they are still under a great deal of control. Um, so long as they go along uh, with the uh, ruling authorities, then it's okay. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, at the same time, you have 
uh, elite, um, educated uh, academics and professors who are rediscovering uh, Buddhist philosophy, Taoist philosophy, Confucian philosophy. So, uh, and a lot of that comes from a kind of national pride. So it's also, so nationalism and revolutionary zeal destroyed traditional religions but at the same time it's a new kind of nationalism cultural nationalism that is seeking to recover okay uh, but recover it still within a nationalist project okay and uh, not so much uh, for an environmentalist project and environmentalist project has to go beyond national boundaries Okay, so uh, we we I hope that uh, they can overcome the nationalism and increasingly play up the environmental aspects of what traditional Chinese religions have to offer to the modern world. Well, uh, Professor Jiang, um, aren't nice. Uh, call for a deep ecology at the end of the last century, rather than a shallow ecology of techno-scientific knowledge that is walled off from consideration of basic ontology, ethics, cosmology, emotions, rituals, lifestyles, and politics. Um, how could deep ecology be linked to Chinese religious ethics? And how could anthropology contribute to its study? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, for example, um, the self, the modern self, okay? So, uh, with the, in Christianity, you have the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century led by Martin Luther. And that was a significant development towards modernity coming to uh, from the West. So from the in inner culture of the West, uh, the Protestant Reformation was a movement away from ritual uh, towards interiority. Okay? So... Uh, it, you know, decried Catholicism and found it overly uh, fussy about uh, this kind of useless ritual. And it focused on the inner self and on uh, ordinary people being able to read the Bible, uh, do away with that Catholic uh, hierarchy of religious authorities and leaders. We don't need to rely on priests and the church to interpret the Bible for us, we ourselves can read the Bible and uh, come to individual interpretations of the Bible. So with the Protestant Reformation, the self comes becomes all important, okay? And uh, Charles Taylor has uh, this uh, Canadian uh, philosopher who has written about modern secularism, mainly from the point of view of uh, the West. Um, he talks about the buffered self. That is where this, the, the boundaries of the self become very clear and hardened. 
right? So the the self becomes all important, um, and um, that is uh, a very important component of modernity. And one can see that even though the Protestant Reformation did not intend it to develop into consumerism, right? Modern consumerism very much depends on the self as the starting point for any kind of thinking and social action. The the self is the seat of human desires and human desires and human sexuality is played up in consumer economies, which are so destructive to the earth, right? Uh, So basically, uh, if you look at Many forms of uh, traditional Chinese religiosities, they're trying to get away from the self. They do not play up the self. Uh, Beginning, first of all, with uh, Buddhism. Buddhism teaches us that the self is illusory, right? It is the the problem. The self is the problem. The, the self is the cause of suffering. It's because you want fame. It's because you want goods and wealth and riches. It's because you want land uh, and all these things that you suffer. Because, of course, reality is always a series of obstacles to your desires, you, you will never fulfill your desires, and desire is a uh, bottomless pit. Uh, we know so many rich people who commit suicide. They are still not happy. Okay, so Buddhism has a lot, uh, you know, to uh, intervene in our uh, modern um, sort of self-destructive ways. Uh, and that is a deep ecology where you start with something that many of us do not question, the self. Of course, the self exists. Of course, the self, we have to protect ourselves. We have to further our self-interest and compete in order to survive. That is not questioned. Uh, But if we could think and live another way, uh, that might be able to help our planet uh, more. Um, not just rely on technology. Uh, for example, you know, relying on technology, uh, we want more electric cars. That's going to solve the problem of um, fossil fuels to our um, climate and, and air. Uh, but electric cars have their new problems. They rely on um, what's the uh, chemical substance um, for the batteries. There are all kinds of minerals that you need uh, to uh, power the batteries. And that requires new mining operations, including deep sea, underwater mining uh, at the, the bottom of the ocean, using powerful new technology to trawl the deep seas. You know, what will that do to the sea creatures and the sea life? Uh, that is also an important component of uh, balancing the climate of planet Earth. So mm-hmm. that is an example. So one of the chapters uh, in my collection, Chinese Environmental Ethics, Religions, Ontologies, and Practices, uh, is a wonderful 
uh, chapter by Robert uh, Campany about uh, medieval era Chinese dreams, the dreamscape of uh, Chinese uh, uh, dreaming. And um, he uh, shows that uh, in these dreams, they do not emphasize the buffered self of uh, Christian modernity or Western modernity. Um, they do not, uh, and then the analysis of dreams, analysis of dreams that Chinese had in medieval era uh, was not about searching for the innermost uh, desires of the self, uh, of the true self, which is how modern psychoanalysis understands dreams, right? It's your uh, unconscious self expressing itself. Okay? It's not about the self uh, most of the time. And uh, Campany describes it as a portal. These dreams served as a portal, a gateway uh, for uh, encounters with other spirits and species, animals, very often. So uh, he's picked out uh, certain dreams that were uh, encounters of communication and interaction between human and uh, other animals. And it, uh, a lot of the dreams involve transformation of humans into other animals, uh, experiencing the pain of there's one dream where the human becomes a fish and this fish is chopped up for dinner. Um, so it's an uh, experiencing uh, kind of the very different species being of other animals. Um, and, and while on the subject of um, encounter, encountering and understanding other species, I want to talk just briefly about Buddhism again. Um, Buddhism has this uh, doctrine of equality. It came out of uh, India, where <clears throat> Hinduism had the very uh, deep hierarchical modes of thinking. Uh, you have caste hierarchy, right? So certain occupational castes uh, are um, at the higher level, like the Brahmins, uh, and then you have go, go down the hierarchical ladder of ranking. And the different castes cannot intermarry to equalize the castes. And they also feel that each other is uh, polluted, so you don't want to touch. Um, so Buddhism came out of that kind of culture uh, advocating radical equality between humans. All human beings have Buddha nature and have the possibility of becoming enlightened seeing through the illusory veil of existence. Buddhism also extended it to other sentient beings like other animals and insects and reptiles. Because after you die, you can become uh, another species uh, depending on your life. Of course, Buddhism did keep a little bit of the hierarchy because it's mainly as a human that you can attain Buddhahood. That you, through self-cultivation and meditation, you can attain enlightenment. It's easier to do so as a human. But you can kind of accumulate that wisdom while you're an animal uh, until you are reincarnated 
as a human in another lifetime. Okay, so uh, one of the chapters is about a Buddhist uh, releasing life ceremony. And uh, that takes place in New York City. So this is by a Ch- uh, Chinese uh, religious studies scholar, Wei Dedong. Wei is his uh, surname. Um, and uh, so he, it's about how uh, immigrants from China in living in New York City, uh, they are Buddhists, and it's a uh, you know, about a particular Buddhist, a Chinese Buddhist temple in New York City, they carry on this uh, releasing life ceremony where uh, in order to inculcate compassion for the suffering of other sentient beings, other animals, usually birds and fish and turtles, because they're easier to release, you have this ritual where you receive uh, blessings from a Buddhist monk, and then you release these uh, captured wildlife. Usually you buy them in the marketplace where they're being sold as food, and you release release the turtles and fish into lakes or reservoirs or rivers um, or the sea. Uh, You release birds, captured birds, uh, into the air. But uh, these immigrants are not very interested in science, and they um, emphasize um, their own merit-making and their own afterlives rather than the compassionate uh, understanding of the suffering of the animals themselves. So uh, through interaction with scientific um, ecological organizations, such as the New York City Turtle and Tortoise Society and the Wild Bird Fund, um, there's this kind of negotiation that he describes, where on the one hand, it's a religious organization of lay people who don't understand the science. You cannot release um, river fish into the ocean. They will not survive, right? So they learn uh, the science. And this is sort of exemplifying how increasingly you have these wonderful religious rituals, but the practice is not perfect. There's a lot of problems with the way it is practiced. Uh, There's also the economic uh, motive in the practice. People who want to sell this uh, wildlife to these Buddhist practitioners to make money. And the Buddhist uh, temples themselves make money from doing these uh, rituals because they can sell the lunches and the trips and, and so forth. So to align the religious practice with the practical ecological science that needs to be there. So this is going to be a long-term negotiation between Buddhism and ecological science. And um, increasingly for environmental purposes, we need to um, align religion and science together. They need to work together instead of being opposed. And now um, I will will quote um, a brief passage uh, of the book. Mm, The recent ontological term in cultural anthropology broadens this field beyond the comparative study of human cultures or systems of representation to encompass the phenomenological 
the phenomenological and experiential aspects of both human and non-human animals, plants, and divine beings, forms of being, life, existence, and agency. Professor Yang, how this ontological term has recently contributed to better comprehend Chinese religiosity and its ethics? Yeah, uh, well, the ontological turn, uh, which is um, doing um, environmentalism at a deeper level, um, questioning our uh, assumptions about existence, uh, reality, and understanding of the self. Uh, this is very suited to um, examining Chinese religiosity because I think that Chinese religiosities have a lot to offer about, you know, questioning basic value assumptions of modernity. Okay, uh, Chinese uh, religions and philosophies and uh, religious cultures have evolved over millennia. And um, of course, in actual practice, that doesn't mean that Chinese civilization has not been destructive of its environment. Yeah, that it's the nature of uh, human beings uh, that we have been destructive of our environments for a long time. But we've never been as intensely destructive uh, as the modern age. Yeah. So um, one thing is that uh, traditional Chinese uh, religions did not make this um, kind of uh, radical separation between uh, culture and nature, nature and culture, okay? So where culture is set up as a dominating force against nature, uh, that nature will submit to human science and technology and human um, uh, ingenuity and, uh, sub, you know, submit uh, to human agency. And where nature is deprived of agency and feeling. So nature has no feelings. It has no emotions. It has no agency. It's just inert, to something to be acted upon. So I think the ontological turn uh, can play up uh, traditional Chinese religiosities, which treated uh, elements of nature with uh, awe and respect. Um, so many elements of nature, such as trees, mountains, rivers, uh, they were thought of as uh, sacred forces. You had to placate these sacred forces. You cannot just plunder and take things from them without giving it back. So you farm the land, uh, but uh, your, your agriculture relies on the rain. It relies on uh, the good climate. It relies on the sun and the moon. So you have uh, built into it this re uh, ritual, religious ritual of uh, sacrificing to them, to thank them, to ask for future blessings, to give back some of the wealth that you have enjoyed. 
So we need to cultivate that kind of uh, sensibility uh, today, even if we don't believe that this mountain is a, a, is a sacred god. We have to behave as if we believe that. Um, I will also uh, mention one chapter, uh, the one that I co-wrote about Ciji Merit Foundation. That's uh, chapter uh, chapter two. Chapter two. Uh, it's called mm -hmm. Buddhist Environmentalism and Civic Engagement in Secular Shanghai, and you know Ciji Merit Foundation is a Buddhist uh, organization that started up in Taiwan where uh, there's uh, less control over religion and religion is uh, flourishing. Um, so they operate also in mainland China, uh, very quietly, low-key. Uh, they don't get involved in politics, so they are allowed to continue to operate. And they've been um, very busy promoting recycling in Shanghai, even before the Chinese government uh, has uh, uh, it's started up its own recycling campaign in 2019. So um, the Ciji Merit Foundation uh, has this notion of, called Wu Ming, that means the life of things. Okay, so in their promotion of recycling, they are seeking to reanimate inert. Uh, objects like consumer items that you just throw away, like plastics. Okay, so they're they're saying that uh, you know this plastic box that you just want to throw away that you don't think has any agency or any life or sentient feelings. It really is also a form of life because life that can re be regenerated and produce a new life. So it draws upon this Buddhist notion of reincarnation, where um, life is just an endless, uh, big uh, cyclical recycling of uh, different uh, forms of materiality. So the same thing with this plastic box. You just casually throw it away into the garbage bin, but why don't you pay more attention to recycling it and giving it a new life? Okay, it can be reborn into a new life form. Yeah, so that's why I bought my sister a Christmas gift. I bought my sister a coat made of recycled plastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 really. Um... Um, amazing um, this this uh, second chapter and, and and all the chapters of of the of this anthology, Professor Jan. So now um, maybe we could uh, start to analyze each of the chapters, if you agree. Okay. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, now, um, firstly, um, the book contains five uh, four parts. Um, First part, exploring non-anthropocentric ontologies and negotiating secular religious boundaries. Uh, part two, entitled Sacred Sites and Feng Shui Landscapes. Part three, Sentient Beings, Engaging with Animals and Divinities in Dreams and Rituals. And 
Part four, utility or sacrality, trees and forests in contemporary China. Um, why did you choose to structure uh, the book this way, in these four parts? Okay, so, um, you know, given the kinds of uh, chapters I got uh, from the contributors, this was the best way, I thought, of uh, dividing them up. So the first one is on um, non-anthropocentric ontologies. Okay, so I've already talked a little bit about Buddhism and ontology, uh, that uh, Buddhism advocates the uh, equality, basic equality, not only of uh, human beings with each other, but also of human beings with other uh, animal species. Okay, uh, they haven't gotten as much to plants, but, you know, maybe that's because uh, Buddhists have to eat something. They have to eat plants. <laughs> so uh, in China, uh, Buddhists are um, vegetarians or Basically, in China, vegetarian means vegan. So most Buddhists do not eat eggs or dairy products. Um, and um, so Je Jeffrey Nicolaison, his uh, article is more philosophical, and uh, it's based on looking at the writings of a, uh, a Taiwan Buddhist uh, nun called... Um, um, Shao, uh, let's see, let's see the uh, Shi, uh, Zhao Hui, uh, Zhao Hui, Shi Zhao Hui, uh, Venerable Zhao Hui, uh, she's a uh, Taiwan Buddhist nun, um, I think she was uh, Western educated. Um, and um, she's been writing uh, against the grain of um, Western um, human rights discourse, okay? So basically, she wants to extend uh, the human rights uh, discourse to the rights of uh, natural entities, okay, non-human entities. Um, and this is also reflective of a movement that is going on in other parts of the world. So in, um, in India recently, uh, they made the Yamuna River, which is a sacred river in Hindu uh, lore, uh, into a, um, an entity with rights, into a person. They gave personhood legal personhood to the Yamuna River in order to protect it from pollution. So uh, if you are given a personhood, then you have a human right. So, you know, others cannot plunder you, uh, you know, illegally uh, for, you know, your resources. So, uh, but she wants to, you know, extend it um, to um, non-human uh, non forces, okay? And then, um, so the discussion of, uh, I just mentioned about um, Wu Ming, the life of things, uh, is also where, um, you know, it's not just human beings who have um, 
feelings and um, animism and uh, agency, but other species too. And even material objects, which we think of as inert, can be given life uh, and animation, uh, such as plastic, which... uh, you know, you know, the Buddhists are extending that Buddhist uh, way of thinking that all living things, um, you know, when they die, they enter into a new realm of life, this notion of reincarnation, right? And they have a new form of life. And same with material objects. So this is a kind of an intervention into our modern ontology and trying to... Uh, you know, extend and um, reinterpret our modern um, sort of uh, anthropocentric ontology and get us to extend life and agency to the non-human world. Well, Professor Yang, um, this was um, the these were the main ideas of of the of the first part. Uh, um, which includes um, the first two chapters, Rethinking Ontology uh, with Equality of Life by Jeffrey Nicolaisen and um, Buddhist Environmentalism and Civic Engagement in Secular Shanghai by Mayfer Zhang and Huang Weishang. And now let's move on to the next part, part two, Sacred Sites and Feng Shui Landscapes, uh, which includes... Uh, two more chapters entitled uh, Feng Shui and Sustainability Debating Livelihoods in the Qing Dynasty by Tristan Brown and Grave Matters Geomancy and Neo-Confucian Resistance to Grave Removal in Central China by Liang Zhongya. And what what are the main ideas and contributions uh, in this second part? Okay, so this uh, second one has to do with uh, sacred landscapes. And uh, the Chinese notion of feng shui is uh, very conducive to promoting environmentalism, um, as seen in these two chapters. Um, So the... In Taoist cosmology, Taoist cosmology, you have this idea that uh, the beginning of the universe, the cosmos, uh, the origin of the cosmos is in a primary breath. Okay, there's a primary breath, uh, and um, later the the cosmos starts from one monistic world, and then it divides up into multiple things in the universe. Right. And but the primary breath runs through all living things, plants, animals and humans. And um, and uh, when each of us is born as an infant, the primary breath called qi is in is very strong within infants. Okay, as we get older and into old age, the primary breath uh, is diminished and loses vibrancy. Um, It gets kind of clogged and stuck. There are many obstacles in our bodies that prevent the free flow of primary breath. Um, So of course, 
Qigong and meditation and breathing exercises can free up that primary breath and cause us to live longer. So uh, it's, it's good uh, to allow that free flow. When I practice uh, Tai Chi um, exercise, uh, I practice for a, uh, about a year and then suddenly one day I felt that Qi moving around inside me. It was so exciting, you know? There really is this chi movement in inside that was released, uh, but I got lazy and I didn't continue. So, um, the the same notion uh, with feng shui is that there are so the primary breath runs along meridians. It's called meridians, which is not the exact same notion as veins for because the Western medical notion of veins is for blood running through your body, right? But Chinese have this notion of meridians and acupuncture is based on different points in the meridians that you tap into to uh, allow the qi to flow. So meridians are kind of like veins, but they're veins for the running of the qi in your body. So the similar thing is that uh, meridians are not just in the human body and uh, so there's no separation between humans and nature and the spirit world okay because within the human body we also have a lot of gods there are tens of tens of hundreds of thousands of gods in different parts of the human body okay so this notion of primary breath qi runs in the body and also throughout the landscape. So there's meridians running through the earth, through the mountains, the rivers, and the land. Okay, And uh, the qi running through it. And you can tap into the land for strength, uh, but you have to allow the free flow of qi, especially water. Flowing water carries qi, and it qi is uh, very good for the health of your family and your village and your community. So you need to have free flow of uh, qi running through the land where you live and through the rivers where you live uh, in order to promote good health. Okay, so uh, this chapter is about looking at the legal codes of the Qing dynasty, which was the last dynasty, was 1644 to 1911. Okay, so it lasted uh, three centuries. And in the Qing legal codes, he found many different legal rulings by Qing authorities, Qing leaders, okay, uh, representing the state where there was a mining operation that wanted to plunder the land and dig up the land for minerals, looking for minerals. Uh, this is, uh, you know, going from the 17th through to the, um, you know, late 19th centuries, where uh, there were rulings that uh, where local people, a local community petitions against the mining operation that would dig up the earth looking for minerals. And the state authorities said no, 
because they wanted to, they sided with the local community saying you have to, you know, they have to protect the meridians flowing through the earth uh, and protect the qi, the primary breath flowing through the land. Okay, so uh, even though feng shui, so this is called feng shui is like uh, understanding the flows of qi running through the land, underneath the land, and uh, citing your buildings and your tombs in accordance with the be- catching the best flow of qi, the primary breath, especially citing your buildings next to the flowing of a river or stream, because that will bring you the best Okay, so even though, you know, feng shui is an ancient art, uh, using the magnetic compass that taps into the electromagnetic field of the earth. This is very ancient, right? But before modern Western science and technology, okay, even though back then that they didn't have environmental problems, right, like we do now. But back then, it was not designed to protect the environment as we understand it today. However, it had the effect of curbing kind of destructive mining practices. It had the effect of protecting the earth is uh, what it shows. So I think that feng shui thinking today still has a good role to play, an important role to play in uh, constructing a modern environmentalism. Okay. And the next chapter by Liang Yongjia, Grave Matters, chapter uh, four. It's about how uh, a local local, uh, authorities in Henan province in um, north central China uh, they are motivated by the profit motive. Uh, they have very little land. Uh, for them, it's uh, much more prestigious and powerful to have modern industry and industrial manufacturing. So they felt that the local people's graveyards, that's a waste of land. So why do you care so much about your dead ancestors? Let's just dig up those graves and replace it with money-making factories and shopping malls and and so forth, right? They have a totally uh, modern, secular viewpoint towards the treatment of the land. For the local people, their ancestors and their ancestors' tombs are very important because the bones of their ancestors buried deep in the earth uh, you know, that in bones encounter the qi flowing through the earth and the bones will ensure a good future for their families and the health and prosperity of their families, right? So that's part of Chinese ancestor worship is tombs and bones uh, and, uh, you know, grave sites. So they didn't want these graves to be dug up. And uh, so what's, uh, they protested and uh, they resisted the local government and uh, their uh, message was taken up by the elite intellectuals in the urban areas who have rediscovered Confucian thinking 
And the urban intellectuals, their motivation was different. They don't believe in feng shui. They don't care so much about the ancestors. Uh, but they're thinking of Confucianism, uh, which is respect for ancestors and respect for graveyards as uh, cultural nationalism. They thought, you know, Confucianism, we need to bring this back to as a national dignity. This is our culture. You know, this is our civilization that we inherited. So the two forces, the grassroots local people and the um, intellectuals uh, join in alliance and the central government uh, intervened and prevented the local authorities uh, from going through with their industrializing plan. So I've already talked about uh, the next section, the Robert Ford Company's uh, chapter five, the non-anthropocentricity of dreaming in late classical and medieval China. So I uh, won't go into that. Um, I'll go to chapter uh, six, I've already talked about too, by Wei Dedong. He's a uh, scholar at uh, Renmin University, People's University in Beijing. And his article chapter is called, chapter six is called A Syncretic Innovation in Chinese Buddhism, Animal Release Rituals in New York City. And that shows uh, the difficulty of putting into practice today, an ancient Buddhist ritual of release, releasing wildlife. Um, and uh, where, you know, some people place more importance on merit making for themselves and their families than on actually the paying attention to the suffering and um, um, of the wildlife they are releasing and making sure that the wildlife they are releasing will actually live after they are released. And so it shows uh, the importance of uh, uh, negotiating and aligning with modern ecological science that can tell us under what conditions will the animals you release have the most, um, the best opportunity to survive the release. So it shows many uh, kind of uh, indifferent, haphazard ways of releasing animals where the animals will die. Uh, they're released in winter into cold, freezing waters, or they'll be picked out by the seagulls above. You need, um, so I think this is a, a good way as uh, Chinese revive this ancient ritual, Buddhist ritual, to work with um, scientists and ecologists uh, to really preserve the original Buddhist principles of showing compassion um, for the uh, wildlife. And uh, so chapter seven, is titled The Ecological Forest of Taoism in Nanjing County, Gansu Province. Um, and then chapter eight is called Homo Arborealis, The Intermeshing of Regimes of Tree-Mindedness by Adam Yuet Chow. Um, chapter seven is by Yang De Rei. He's a scholar based at Nanjing University in China. 
So the two uh, chapters are about um, trying to preserve um, trees and forests. Um, so chapter seven is a bit of a sad tale um, in that it's kind of an example of a failure or maybe temporary failure, but uh, it's um, a, a sad story where the local Taoist um, priests in this area, a very dry, drought-ridden area of Gansu province in northwestern China. Uh, in northwestern China, there's serious desertification going on. Um, so the desert is moving ever further southward. And uh, he shows how there was overpopulation even back in the Qing dynasty, okay, the last dynasty of China. Uh, too many human beings settled there, and uh, they kept on drawing water from the river, and they overused the river. So in the modern times, for example, under the Mao Zedong era, uh, it was much more serious. Uh, they settled too many people out there, much more than the river could provide. So the problem has just gotten worse. And uh, so recently, uh, the Chinese central government uh, called upon the Taoists uh, revived a Taoist priesthood to help in countering drought. Okay, so Taoism in that area has long dealt with drought. But the problem is that I think in the uh, Qing dynasty, the population got out of hand. There was a, a, a loss of the balance between human and what the land can sustain. Because, you know, China had a population explosion beginning in the uh, 16th, 17th centuries. And uh, then, um, you know, Taoists were conducting drought uh, relief ceremonies, rituals to plead with the gods for rain. And I think they had also practical measures to counter uh, desertification. But... Moving into the 20th century, Taoism was uh, cast aside as backward and superstitious. The, the priesthood no longer had any religious or political authority, and so they couldn't do anything. So now they are using, it's a very fledgling kind of weak organization, religious organization, and so they seize the opportunity uh, granted by the central government to call upon religions to contribute in the um, environmental efforts. So Adam, uh, oh, yeah, one of the contributors, Adam Chow, calls it the politics of legitimation, where religions will seize whatever opportunities that the state offers to them to le make themselves legitimate. Because there's been this 20th century suppression of religion, and the government still sees religion as a threat and really wants to control it very tightly. Um, when the government asks you to do something, of course, you're going to seize that opportunity. But 
it may be that if the government had asked for this earlier, it would have worked better. So at this point, uh, they galvanized into action, but they really couldn't do anything because the river had run up dry. There was nothing they could do. So the central government just moved in with the big state um, uh, plans and projects with big uh, scientists and technological operations. And the Taoist organization was, again, kind of cast aside. So that's uh, uh, the story of um, uh, efforts today. It's not so easy to... You know, because Taoist uh, thinking and cosmology is very environmental, right? Uh, because the whole notion of Tao, the way, and how humans must um, align their human activities and social institutions with the independent um, force of the Tao, that's a very environmentalist way of, of uh, approaching uh, life. Um, but something like Taoism today is, as an organization, is uh, still very weak, so is not able to exert its influence. Uh, Adam Chow's uh, chapter eight is about um, different regimes of tree-mindedness. So he begins with uh, the Maoist era, where there was a lot of planting of trees, and then he moves to the post-Mao era, where <clears throat> this uh, um, deity temple honoring the Black Dragon King in um, northern uh, Shanxi province um, is also promoting tree planting. So from a state, a secular state organized uh, tree planting campaigns um, across uh, much of China. Uh, now uh, he's looking at um, a religious organization promoting tree planting. Okay, so yeah, trees are very important to us, and um, we do see that in China, nationalism, which is a kind of quasi religious uh, force in the modern world, um, uh, can also pro promote tree planting as the Chinese government has. Uh, but you also have a local religious temple um, also promoting um, the uh, restoration of the forests that were lost. <laughs> well, Dr. Jiang, um, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, before we end our interview, I uh, wonder if you could tell us about what research projects uh, you are working on now. Okay, yeah, I have uh, several ongoing projects and um, four, as a matter of fact. So I'm writing a book uh, that is continuing this edited collection. Uh, the book title is called um, Religious Environmentalism in the Anthropocene. Potentialities and Actualities in Wenzhou and Taiwan. So I've done the Wenzhou part uh, the, of the research, uh, the fieldwork. Uh, now I hope to get a grant to go to Taiwan to look at uh, religious uh, environmentalist efforts in Taiwan. 
the second uh, project is that I'm working on, uh, you know, the northwest coast of North America. There are many indigenous uh, groups up there. They're called collectively Northwest Coast um, uh, Native Americans. They include groups such as the Tlingit, the Kwakawak, uh, the Haida, and so forth. And what they all share is a potlatch culture. Uh, this is big feasting and big gift giving. And um, so I'm looking at, and then their art motifs are very similar. It's a symmetrical bifurcated um, animal um, faces. Uh, very similar to uh, the art motif of ancient Shang Dynasty bronze ritual vessels in China. So what is the connection? I think there's a maritime connection, but there's also this uh, culture of feasting and gift giving. Um, and I'm using two anthropologists, uh, Marcel Moss, who wrote the classic The Gift, and Georges Bataille. Um, who uh, is a um, an, another theorist of the gift and who is uh, theorizing excessive gift giving, excessive uh, ritual expenditures. So I compare and contrast them in examining this question of similarities between Northwest Coast indigenous cultures and ancient Chinese cultures. Um, a third project I'm working uh, doesn't have anything to do with religion, uh, but it's about gender and sexuality in East Asian media culture. And specifically, I'm contrasting um, new images of Chinese masculinity and nationalism with uh, contrasting that with the uh, soft a masculinity and transnational ethos of K-pop, you know, Korean popular culture, uh, popular music, uh, with the um, Japanese retreating masculinity and self-exiling masculinity of um, this phenomenon called hikikomori. Uh, hikikomori is a Japanese term for to retreat and hide yourself. So this is primarily a, a, affecting a lot of younger men who just some, many of them cannot leave their homes. Some of them cannot leave their rooms. They do not hold jobs. They just retreat and hide. And they cannot have face-to-face -face social interaction. It's a physical thing. They just cannot do it. So this is a retreat. So it's about media and gender and masculinity. And then the fourth project, I'm editing a book called uh, Anthropology of an Ascendant China. So because, uh, you know, for the past uh, few decades, China has been economically rising so dramatically and also increasingly politically influential. So what do anthropologists uh, say about an ascendant China. Uh, anthropologists uh, do long-term field work. They're more immersed in the culture. Um, so anthropology uh, just uh, perspectives would differ. You know, usually when people comment on China's ascendancy, it's done by policymakers and by uh, media journalists and, and so forth, right? But um, anthropologists may bring something new 
to this discussion, perhaps less paranoid. Um, and, um, you know, talking about both the benefits as well as uh, the worrisome concerns that, and problems that arise. So certainly environment is <laughs> one of the problems of China's uh, economic ascendancy. Well, I'm really looking forward to reading your, your new researchers and, and your new books, uh, Professor Yang. Thank you very much. Uh, for talking with us today. All the luck and success for uh, what is coming. Okay, thank, thank you, you very so much. much for inviting me and thanks for the interview. All right. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so much. It was your it was your host, Gustavo Gutierrez Suarez. See you on the next episode of New Books in Anthropology. Okay, thanks.